I definitely recommend anybody considering to do any kind of, of long distance through hike, put themselves in, in shape. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast. This is Chris here again with Ben. How are you doing today, Ben? I'm good, Chris. Another day working down at the Shell plant, you know. It's all right. I am excited today to introduce our special guest, Dan. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Chris. It's uh, great to be here. Yeah, Dan. Welcome aboard. For people who don't know you, Dan, um, why don't you give us a little introduction of yourself and uh, tell us how you got interested in World War II and how you got interested in reenacting? Sure. Uh, so, yeah, obviously my name is Dan. Uh, um, I come from Pennsylvania, uh, which was a former former uh, good legacy state for a lot of uh, big events. Um, and uh, that was part of my early exposure to, to reenacting was actually the Reading Air Show. Uh, that happens every year in uh, Reading, Pennsylvania at the Mid-Atlantic Air Museum. Um, I guess the seed for, for World War II itself was planted a little earlier than that. Uh, I don't remember my exact age, but I was definitely uh, like early elementary school aged. And uh, I was going through a bookshelf in my, my mom's office at home. And I think it, it was this, uh, it was, I think it was a Time Life publication, but it was this big, you know, comprehensive photographic uh, picture book of, of World War II. And I read that thing, flipped that thing cover to cover probably two, three hundred times. I mean, till, till the binding wore out on that book, I just went through it and I was just enamored with the, the imagery of it and just the, the, the drama of the, the kind of content that was in there. I, uh, it was just, you know, something that spoke to that part that uh, every little boy has in them that uh, appeals to being a soldier. Uh, so... Uh, that was definitely where the seed planted. And from there, I, I, you know, started asking my dad to take me to uh, military surplus stores to, to check out the things they had there. And, you know, I was like, I think eight, eight or nine years old, the first time I, I, I bought my first helmet and it was a, a USGI helmet. And I was so proud of that thing. And, uh, it just kind of set an addiction to start, uh, buying more stuff, you know, finding more stuff, seeking it out. And, uh, you know, by the time I hit my teenage years, uh, I had, uh, I think I was right on the cusp of 13. My dad had taken me to this, uh, air show, this, uh, massive reenactment they have in Reading every year. And, uh, uh, I, I just was like blown away because of that, that was still, that was early two thousands. And so that was a, a big peak, I think, era for, for reenacting overall for World War II reenacting particularly. And uh, there was just so much stuff there, like all the things I'd seen in that book that I found as a kid was everywhere. All the, the, the tanks, the half tracks, uh, the firearms, the, all the equipment, like and, and in huge amounts too. And I was just like totally hooked at that point. And I made it a determination at that age. I was like, I, I want to I start reenacting when I'm old enough. So I started collecting everything that I could, researching what I could to put together, you know, a viable kit. Uh, and it was all USGI stuff at first. 
which was really cool to me. But, uh, you know, after enough years of going to that event, you know, I, and seeing the, the German encampments and stuff, that really started to resonate with me. Um, it, it was just something different about it. Something, you know, I don't know, kind of, kind of steampunk the way the Germans have. So much modern yet archaic stuff incorporated together in their, their equipment loadouts. And, uh, I, I just, I, I started to turn my attention towards that. And, um, and, uh, by the time I was, you know, I think, uh, right at the end of high school, I, I started collecting a full German kit and uh, started seeking out uh, reenactment groups uh, and eventually found one to fall in with and uh, have been there since. That's really cool, dude. Yeah, I know what you mean. I, I like the uh, the German kit in that they're using like wool and leather still in the, in the 20th century, you know, when, you know, of course, other armies were transitioning over to like all cotton and then some synthetics, you know, it's, it's, it, it is, it is a cool throwback almost, you know, very traditional. Of course, the Germans also had, you know, TVs and stuff. So yeah. It's, it's that juxtaposition of old stuff and jet, new stuff. Yeah. Jet fighters and like leather, leather belts, you know? Yeah. Like that's, that's the, Did, that's a cool thing to me. It's like, you see a guy wearing a wool uniform in 1945 with leather sold shoes, which is, you know, something uh, an unchanged design since you know the the 16 1700s uh but he's got you know an assault rifle with an infrared optic on it and it's like <laughs> it's just a wild like like you said chris it's a wild juxtaposition that just i, I don't know it's uh, the merging of two different technological worlds uh and, and i just it, it, it speaks to me <laughs> so dan how long have you been doing uh events doing world war ii german reenacting so uh, I started in summer of 2009. So, uh, I was 19 then, and uh, I've been doing it consistently ever since. Trying to get in, I try to get in at least four to five events a year if I can, um, but definitely, definitely more. It used to be a lot easier in the past, but uh, I, I still get out there a fair amount. I think that's great, dude. That's awesome. Yeah, reenactment has changed quite a bit since 2009 in the Northeast region of the United States, at least. Yeah, totally. We've seen the rise and fall of many an event site and uh, many a unit, and uh, the hobby seems to be very much in a state of transition now. But I feel like, you know, I saw, and I know you saw, like, a different era of reenacting, you know, in its, in, in its prime, actually, if you started in 2009. Yeah, it's definitely when I first started, uh, it was, uh, I'd say, the tail end of that legacy era uh, of, of the hobby before it started to shift a little, um, before, you know, uh, the public became more aware and certain, you know, political climate uh, 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 elements became more of a concern. Uh, you know, there was a ton of events in that mid-Atlantic area of, you know, Pennsylvania, New York, Virginia, Northern Virginia. Um, there was just like, Pennsylvania was a huge hub for a lot of events and, uh, uh, there was so many to go to. It was kind of overwhelming, but that has certainly shifted a lot in, in the more recent years. I'm jealous, man, in, in a way. You know, you, you really experience something special. Well, there will definitely be events to go to this year. Um, totally. Dan, what, what kind of events are you looking at for doing uh, in 2023? 
there's still a couple there's still a couple events out there that uh, are you know carryovers from the old days that I will definitely have on my calendar. Reading the Reading Air Show, it, you know, it's it is my first love. It's it's tacky and it's gaudy and it's it's a total it's a total circus. But uh, you know, that's it's where I discovered the hobby, uh, and so it'll always have a special place in my heart. So I will definitely be going to that. Um, there are, I think there's another event there that happens here in Pennsylvania. There's a, a tactical that happens twice. It's kind of the replacement for fig it happens in Hazleton, Pennsylvania. Uh, and, uh, I'm going to try to make the fall one. It's definitely a little, a little nicer than the spring one. In my opinion, the weather's usually a lot nicer. It's not as cold. It's usually drier. Uh, so that one I think is on the schedule and, uh, I'm going to try to fill the gaps in between with, uh, I think I'm going to start doing some more like small uh, immersion focused sort of private event stuff. Uh, that seems to be an, uh, a solid new direction that uh, the hobby is, is headed towards for a lot of people. And, uh, I, I, you know, I, I fall in with a, a, a really solid group of guys and uh, there's a lot of creativity there and a lot of passion. And I see you know, a lot of promise in the stuff that we have planned going forward. So that's definitely going to make up the bulk bulk of the year for me. And that'll probably be like three events, I think. That's great, dude. Yeah, we've come to a similar conclusion just about the, the, the path forward. And I, I, I agree with that. I And I, I wish you luck in those endeavors, you know. Thank you. As long as we have a solid crew of people, you know, um, like you say, if you're a reenactor, if you've got friends who are interested in the same kind of things it's and who have some energy and some drive to create something, it's just a matter of doing it. You know, it's just a matter of getting a site, um, figuring out where to do it, scheduling it, and then getting together and, and doing World War II. And I love that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. So, Dan, uh, the real reason why I wanted to talk to you today is, uh, for people who don't, know about this you have actually experienced a really exciting to me real life outdoor adventure that i am super jealous of and that you did a through hike of the appalachian trail um so i want to talk about kind of how you got the idea to do it how you prepared for it um but first for people who don't know what the appalachian trail is can you kind of describe what this what this thing actually is and how big it is yeah, so the Appalachian Trail is a uh, it's a footpath uh, that runs approximately twenty two hundred miles. It basically is twenty two hundred miles uh, between Springer Mountain, Georgia, in the north of the state of Georgia, and uh, Baxter State Park in Central Maine uh, uh, on Mount Katahdin. Um, it was uh, established, I think, officially opened in 1937. There's a guy named Benton McKay, who was uh, one of those early 20th century uh, nature appreciators, environmentalist types. Uh, and he had this uh, idea of having a lot of uh, access to the, uh, the outdoors for, you know, nearby were for people who were dwelling in cities. Uh, what that morphed into then was... Uh, sort of connecting a bunch of, of, you know, sort of retreat camps and existing trail segments into this, this massive, you know, contiguous uh, footpath that, that spanned, not at that time, it was a little bit shorter when it was completed, but, you know, uh, it certainly was 
created the bulk of that that distance uh, and as time went on things were uh, more more parts were added and it was all stitched together but um yeah it's uh it's a pretty pretty impressive thing uh for sure for the sort of pre-interstate era that is actually pretty impressive you know that's that's very impressive like i i, I didn't realize it was that old i think it was probably from, what from the 50s or 60s that's that's really cool man yeah i mean early on it was uh the idea of through hiking was uh, was like a uh, kind of an unheard of thing. A couple people had had the idea, and there's uh, certainly some contested accounts, early accounts uh, of claims uh, for different people who attempted it. But really, nobody prior to the late '40s, uh, no one had really on record attempted such an idea because you know it was it wasn't something that was thought of as uh, a, a trail that you hike all at once, right? It was it was just something that had access points um, all through a, a, a very long geographic area so that lots of people had an opportunity to, to get outside. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, there's a guy, he is credited, and there's some, you know, skepticism and some contention about the claim, but uh, a guy named Earl Schaefer who was a, a World War II veteran, uh, he came home, uh, I believe he was a Pennsylvania native and, uh, he decided to d- attempt what is what for the longest time has been credited as the, the first known through hike of the AT in 1948. Uh, and from there it just kind of kept going. It just became, became a goal for people. That's really, really cool. Do you, do you know like how it was popularized? I imagine publications the day magazines and, and, would have uh, would have maybe spotlighted that, right? Yeah, I, I from what I recall, do, in, in a little bit of research I've done, historical research, there was uh, certainly a a, a a campaign to spread the word about this thing early on as it was being constructed uh, by various associates uh, that uh, this guy Benton McKay had had made or recorded. Uh, there were some, you know, individuals. Uh, who, you know, were connected to uh, the United States government, who were, you know, uh, attempting to popularize this thing and make it a a national scenic trail, which was a a thing that happened later on in the 60s, designating these things basically as, you know, like a national treasure, so to speak. Um, But, uh, yeah, it, it was definitely not something that was left unheard of or undiscussed uh, there was there were certainly attempts early on to to make it known to people you know advertise i think i think early on in the first half of the 20th century uh you, you may have seen some of that like 1930s art advertising the uh the national parks and stuff uh and it, it, yeah. it kind of falls into that same realm as you know we've got you know, we've got the the wpa and the ccc out here doing all this work uh building up these these outdoor environments uh these recreational spots for people to go enjoy these natural treasures that the, the u.s has you know this here is now one of those go on and get out there so it fell into that that same realm that's really cool man yeah i was gonna ask if you know if the the ccc was involved in constructing the aat i um, i believe certain or... parts there there were uh and i don't know that the entirety of it was but uh i because i don't i don't recall the entire breakdown of you know what what people or what crews are responsible for doing what sections but i i know there are certain uh parts along the trail 
uh, here and there that can be credited to uh, the CCC or the WPA. Uh, you know, That's like cool, they're, like like a like a stone retaining wall or something. You know, there you'll be walking along. And there's a plaque, and it'll be like this was installed on such and such a date by members of you know this local uh, CCC crew. I know a lot of people can probably relate to going to national parks and forests or going hiking, but not a lot of people are ever going to walk from the northeastern or from the southeastern part of the United States to the far northeastern part. What was it that made you interested in doing that uh, to begin with? Yeah, I'm, I've always, I grew up in a pretty rural area and uh, my dad growing up and, and my uncles, his brothers were, you know, fairly fairly avid outdoorsmen, uh, you know, skiing, hiking, mountain biking, that kind of thing. Uh, and so I was exposed to that. And, uh, you know, my parents put me through scouts when I was young. And so I, I got that exposure to a little bit to, to backpacking and, and hiking on a somewhat regular basis. Uh, so uh, I took to it pretty, pretty well at a young age. It always appealed to me. Um, and uh, I grew up uh, the the area I grew up in the the little you know farming village I grew up in is only about as the crow flies like two miles from a ridge line that the trail traverses uh, so it was always there like and I and I was always I guess aware that there was this thing called the Appalachian Trail there it, it never really uh, I never really made the connection that like hey this is this is like crazy this is this is a, you know a two thousand plus mile trail here uh, in your backyard. Uh, cause to me, it was always just, you know, oh, this is a place that I go sometimes on the weekend with my dad to, you know, do a day hike or whatever. Um, but about the time it was actually right around the time that I, uh, had, uh, joined my reenacting group. Uh, I was, uh, oddly enough coming home from a work party that we had been doing one Saturday, uh, for the vehicles in our, in our group. And, uh, I was coming up over this, this ridgeline, uh, driving up over the ridgeline here. There's a road that goes over top of it. And, uh, as I was coming down the other side, I saw this, this young woman on the side of the road, waving her arms, you know, clearly trying to flag me down. Uh, and so I, I stopped, I pulled over and, uh, she explained she was a through hiker, uh, on the AT. She had a couple friends with her and, uh, uh, they were looking to go to, you know, any, any store or convenience, you know, mini mart or something nearby where they could do a, you know, a little bit of a resupply for some food and stuff. And so, you know, I let them all these, these three very smelly people climb into my car and, uh, I drove them, you know, uh, to go get some stuff and, and come back. And, you know, it took about a half hour, uh, round trip. And in that time, you know, I, I got, uh, some real exposure to the concept of a through hike and like what through hiking the AT was. These people were, you know, from all parts of the United States. Uh, I think, you know, one of them was from California and I was like, this is, this is kind of wild. So that was my, my first real introduction to the realization that like this, this was a thing that people actually attempted to do. Uh, and so I think that planted the seed. Uh, at that time though, I was, you know, 20 years old, uh, I was, uh, heading into my sophomore year of college. So I had other things on the table that I, you know, had to felt like I had to complete first, but you know, I, I started thinking about the trail more at that point in time. 
Uh, and by the time I had graduated college, you know, I, I wanted to take a year off and, uh, you know, do some exploring, do an adventure or something like that. And, uh, you know, a, a friend of mine who was kind of in a similar bohemian type situation was like, yeah, that, you know, you know, it would be cool. I think we should hike the Appalachian Trail. And we like, we, we thought, hey, yeah, let's hike the Appalachian Trail together. So we kind of made some loose plans and, uh, uh, you know, life gets in the way as it does. And those plans kind of fell through. Uh, you know, I, I was dealing with some medical issues. So that kind of, that kind of put an end to that, that plan for, you know, attempting to do this thing the next season. Um, and, uh, you know, I just kind of fell into the, the routine of life at that point, you know, got a job, uh, started, you know, uh, chasing more, uh, typical, typical priorities, domestic priorities. And, uh, by the time, you know, I will say it was the summer of 2016, it was the fall of 2016. Uh, I'm 26 years old. I'm having a rough day at work. Uh, my boss is chewing me out over, over something, <laughs> over something stupid. And I, and, and like, I've just, I just had it. So we, we kind of had this blow up tiff. Uh, I go my way, he goes his way to continue doing work. And I'm, I'm looking off in the distance here. Uh, I was working in agriculture in a vineyard at the time. And, uh, so there's a lot of hilltops. So I'm on this hilltop and I'm looking out in the distance here and I, I can see the ridge line that this trail traverses. And I'm like, man, why am I not doing that? Like I, I, I should be doing that. And, uh, you know, I said nuts to this. I, I said, you know, that, that's it. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to finally do this thing. I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to go hiking when the spring comes. So I made the plan. Uh, you know, I'm going to, uh, I, you know, finished out the year, uh, and then I put in my resignation notice when, uh, about, I think it was like January of 2017 rolled around and, uh, you know, made, made my personal life arrangements that I needed to, to accommodate this thing, started, started making a plan, started, uh, accumulating equipment and, uh, and then it was, you know, the, and then it just went from there. I love that very almost cinematic description of how you came to this, came to this, uh, this, this idea came to you, man. That's really cool. Um, now if, uh, you say you started in the, you know, in the spring and, uh, and, you know, continue on from there, that's pretty common, right? Like most people start in the spring and, and, well, and before you even start, you've got to prepare like, Dan, did you have to physically train for this at all? Or were you just like in super fit shape and just ready to take on a 2000 mile walk? I, I definitely recommend anybody considering to do any kind of, of long distance through hike, uh, put themselves in, in shape if they're not by any measure at all. And now that doesn't mean you don't, you, you like absolutely have to be because an element of this does, uh, you know, ultimately come down to just sheer willpower. Uh, you know, there were people I, I met out there who looked like, you know, like soft dough, man. You're like, there's no way this person's going to make it, but they did. They persevered, but you definitely are doing yourself a favor if you, if you get yourself in shape. And so, you know, I've always been in what I would consider a, a, a little higher than average, you know, fitness level, uh, at that time, you know, definitely not, not the highest I've ever highest fitness level I've ever been in, but, but definitely not out of shape or so I thought <laughs> at any point. So I did a couple practice hikes, uh, but you know, I, uh, be the first one to, uh, you know, 
say that I hate cardio. <laughs> and so it's not like I was doing runs or anything or, or working really hard. I just, you know, I figured, you know, I had a, a fair enough fitness level to attempt this thing. So uh, I didn't do a whole lot of fitness planning outside of just, you know, putting on my pack a couple times to see how it would balance and fit uh, as I was going over terrain and doing a couple short, you know, few mile test hikes. Um, but, you know, I certainly could have used it. Uh, uh, you know, I found out th the first week I had on trail was definitely a little bit of an eye opener. It was tough. Um, wow. my, my cardio was not great. It definitely improved by the end of that week. But yeah, I mean, I, I had a bit of a humbling experience out there early on. Uh, those, those Georgia, those Georgia, steep Georgia mountains will, uh, they'll kick your ass a little bit. Jeez, dude. So how much, uh, equipment did you have to accrue? I mean, did you have some of the stuff already from, you know, growing up and hiking and just being generally outdoorsy or did you have to buy a lot of it and how much was the expense why didn't you just use your tornister dan <laughs> because you know because zella 39 <laughs> wasn't making cool tornisters yet so i didn't i didn't own one uh uh I see. yeah so yeah I, I i know the kit hike thing is pretty cool for a lot of people now i i see that uh putting on gear but yeah it, it, there are certainly challenges that are are presented to you uh by wearing old school stuff like that. Uh, so, no, a lot of my stuff was uh, obviously modern. Uh, and uh, I had some stuff starting out, um, but a lot of it I deemed to be kind of out of date or not not what I was, you know, looking for. Uh, you know, the technology had for backpacking had shifted pretty significantly since I was a teenager, you know, in Boy Scouts where I started getting my first, you know, backpacking stuff. So, uh, ultimately, I ended up replacing a lot of things uh, to to suit my kit or to suit my 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 pack a lot better. Uh, there's this, this huge push towards what they call ultralight backpacking, which is, you know, basically just the most ridiculous stripped down uh, version of backpacking that you can possibly have, where everything like pe people are counting grams uh, in, in terms of weight because they they don't want to have to carry any more than uh you know like 17 pounds at most so uh that was not where i was going but i tried to compromise a little bit so i did have to buy a fair amount of stuff um cost wise i mean y you do what you can you can cut corners in some places but this is a the outdoor industry certainly has become something of a, a bit of a, a bougie sort of uh industry so some Gear can be pretty expensive, so I think I invested probably in the neighborhood of $1,500 in gear itself uh, to start. By the end of it, it was probably more like 2000 because there's some things you run into and you're like, you know what, this, this product isn't working out that well. I'm going to switch to something else. So, um, yeah. Do, do, you think that expense is, do, do you think that expense is typical for most AT hikers? Roundabout. I, I would say it's typical, but I don't, I, I wouldn't say that it's like, it's necessary. Uh, I definitely ran into people out th okay. there doing it on a budget and, you know, just because stuff can be lightweight doesn't mean it has to be lightweight. I mean, the first, the first people really, you know, the first community <coughs> of through hikers, let's say like going back into the seventies, like they did their, their stuff can't even compare at all remotely. 
uh, to the, the kind of equipment that you can get today. Like they, these guys were carrying 60 pound packs or more because everything was just like, everything was just like heavy, thick nylon and aluminum tubing and, and sometimes, you know, uh, canvas, uh, you know, so if you, if you want to buy cheaper equipment that weighs heavier, you certainly can, and you can get away with it, I think. I mean, I remember uh, my dad uh, grew up in Colorado, and he kept all of his old hiking and Boy Scout stuff. And, yeah, those yeah those old 70s packs, they're well-made, but, yeah, they, they weigh a bit, you know. I, I remember, like, carrying one as a kid, you know, and it's uh, it's it's not super light. So I, I guess I see the appeal of ultralight, you know, ultralight stuff i think it's interesting that the amount of money that you spent dan for your hiking kit for this trip was like kind of analogous to what it cost to get started in world war ii reenacting and it, i guess like kind of almost every hobby takes money to get started and probably a lot of hobbies take like around that amount of money i think yeah i mean in a lot of ways uh i i you know i'm, I'm a man of many many hobbies uh and uh yeah there's there's most of the activity, there's like very little you can do anymore, especially I guess in in the in the Western world. That's a hobby that doesn't have some sort of purchase cost involved, like a startup cost, because everything is so uh, material and equipment focused, right? Uh, that like you you've got to invest money. Like you like photography, you're gonna buy lots of cam- you're gonna buy lots of lenses, and you're gonna buy a nice camera. You know, you you like uh, making music, like you're gonna buy a bunch of you know expensive turntable equipment and, and speakers and and mix mix pads. You know, you like if you like anything, uh, yeah, you're gonna definitely have to invest money. Uh, and in this case, though, uh, you know, the equipment is is definitely a lot of it is 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 pretty necessary. There are some things that are superfluous or that you could do without because they're just you know a comfort item, but. Uh, some things are just non-negotiable. Like you just, you have to have them. And so if, if you, if you're going to go out there and do overnight backpacking, especially multiple overnights in a row, one after another, after another, after another for like, you know, seven, eight, nine days, uh, without being able to stop off anywhere and, and get a break and refresh, then yeah, you got to have a certain, you know, minimum equipment threshold and that, and that takes money. <laughs> what was your most luxury item? Would you say? <laughs> oh, most luxury item i think it's gonna be a toss-up between my inflatable sleeping pad or um the battery bank that i took with me to charge my gopro and my phone uh that battery bank, some people in the ultralight hiking community would have definitely looked at that thing and, and just like retched at, at the weight of it. Like, I didn't think it was that heavy. The thing probably weighs just shy of a pound, but, you know, some people would think that's that's terrible. But uh, A pound is too much. Wow, that's wild. Dude. Yeah, well, I know. Like I said, these people, they count, and like no disrespect to them, you know, you know, to each their own. There's, there's a saying out there, yeah, hike your own hike, you know, to each their own. Uh, but sometimes for me, you know, it can be a little ridiculous when you're counting grams. Wow. So if I'm, uh, if I'm getting a sense of this right, you were you were sleeping outside or camping most nights, right? Yeah, just about. Yeah, like how how does this actually work? Because like 
you know, what is how many miles do you walk in a day? And then what do you do at the end of the day? And how do you eat? And just how does life work when you're on the march for days and weeks and, and you know, months like this? Yeah, so life is um, it's it's definitely different, obviously, obviously, than, you know, day to day domestic life. Uh, but there is you get a you you build a sense of a routine eventually and it becomes very easy to stick to uh, y- you you plan out ahead you know how how many miles you're going to walk in a day uh comes down to the, the basically the the type of terrain you're working on right is there a lot of elevation gain and loss that's a huge consideration because you know if, you, if you're going up and you're hauling weight going up it definitely adds to the amount of time and effort it takes to go to, to cover those miles. Uh, if the ground is flat, you know, you can make great time. So you kind of, you kind of use your judgment here at looking at the, the terrain maps ahead to see, you know, how much mileage you think you can cover. And, uh, the, the, you know, that total distance is, you know, broken up by, uh, gaps in terms of where you can stop and, uh, refresh. So like I, I broke everything up in my approach, uh, f- sort of in this, this broad outline of, uh, town to town, right? How many miles is it to the next town? Uh, so, uh, how many, how many miles do I want to do in a day in order to be get there? Cause you know, that determines how much food I have to carry. You know, if I can cover X amount of miles to the next town in three days instead of five days, then I have to carry less food. Less food is less weight. You know, less weight is a more comfortable experience overall. So you kind of calculate those those uh, those numbers a little bit. And that was like my my nighttime ritual uh, right before going to sleep was to kind of sit there and go through my my map and my guidebook and try to to figure this all out at least a week's worth in advance. Uh, so you know, on average for me though, at, when, once I was finally up and kicking, you know, at, at peak performance, I was between 20 and 30 miles a day. Um, wow, dude. Yeah. (laughs) And, and like I said, that's heavily terrain dependent, you know, when the terrain's good, you can, you can just hammer down and make good time. Uh, if it's rough, you know, so be it, you got to slow down a little bit, you know? Um, and it's all about how you're feeling that day too. If you're not feeling your best, you know, there's no sense in pushing it. You got to slow down. So a lot of it's an educated guess. Um, but did you ever find yourself getting sick uh, during the experience? You know, get a cold or you eat something and you just feel weird for a few days? No. Or, uh, did you... Thankfully, thankfully not. No. Uh, un- surprisingly, uh, sickness is pretty common along the trail. Uh, it, it's like you, you don't think of the outdoors as like a place where you get sick from other people. But the, the thing is, the trail really is just this, this narrow corridor upon which a bunch of people are trying to do the same thing at the same time. So sure. like you're passing yeah, over totally. the same ground, you're touching the same stuff that other people have touched. Uh, and when you get to town, like all these other people are going to the same hiker spot, hi- hi- hiker friendly spots. So, uh, like, yeah, that's how you catch a cold, you know? Yeah. Like norovirus, <laughs> norovirus was a, was a, a thing, uh, early on. Like I totally was taken by surprise by it. Like it's not something I considered at all because again, your expectation is you're outside. Like you're not, you're not thinking about communicable diseases. Uh, but, uh, like in the first 
four days that I was on trail, it became apparent that like there was a wave of neurovirus that was just tearing through hikers. And I was like, no, man, no, 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 I don't, I don't want any of that. And I got, I got kind of paranoid admittedly at first, because, you know, the last thing you really want, the last thing I really want is to be, you know, laying prostrate on the ground in the woods, who knows how many miles from, you know, real help, just, you know, puking my guts out. Like that's, that's, a, that's a bad day. I don't want that. Um, so I look, man, I don't blame you. Yeah. So like, I was like aggressively hand washing at every opportunity and avoiding, avoiding like common spots. Uh, so yeah, no, I, I thankfully never suffered. I never, I never caught anything. Uh, I was fortunate, but a lot of people around me did. And, uh, yeah, it can, it can get kind of ugly out there. So no, I, I was safe though. Where do you sleep on the trail, Dan? Uh, there's a number of places. So there, there's two like primary sleeping uh, methods in terms of equipment for for people. It's uh, hammocking and tenting, which is you know your conventional. Uh, I opted out of hammocking because uh, the hammock I wanted was like obscenely expensive, and uh, hammocks are kind of a a, a kit setup. You, you it's not just a hammock. You get a hammock, then you got to buy a rain fly to go over top of it separate. Then you got to buy a, 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 an under quilt, which is basically like a sleeping bag, uh, that, like a down or insulated sleeping bag that wraps underneath the hammock to insulate you because, you know, at night comes and the air gets cold and you're literally hanging exposed in the air with it underneath you. Uh, so you got to buy that. And this is, this is like, you're looking at like 700 to to $1,000 for a quality setup. Uh, so I went with the tent method, um, you know, and... Uh, a lot of times you, you, you'll be walking along and there's a lot of pre-established, uh, camping sites or, uh, shelter sites. Uh, the AT has a ton of shelters, uh, which are these, you know, rudimentary, uh, well, in most cases, rudimentary, some are extravagant, but they're essentially lean-tos or sheds, uh, that, uh, various trail clubs, which are the, the groups of people responsible for maintaining a given section of trail, they, they will build these things and, and you can, you know, crawl up inside of one of these and, and spend a night and they're actually quite nice uh but they have a lot of tenting room around them as well open ground where you can tent um other options people can you know do what they call stealth camping which is where you just kind of dip off the side of the trail into the into the woods into a secluded spot and you you camp by yourself and and that can be fun too it really depends what the experience you're looking for uh i that's cool man. yeah did did you did you do all of those? I was going to ask. Like, did you do every every kind of camping? I, yeah, I did. I mean, I didn't do any hammock camping, obviously. But, uh, no, I, I did some stealth camping. Um, I, I did uh, a fair amount of camping in my tent, obviously. Uh, there's not always a, a, a you know, a place uh, or another option. I, you know, and I did some cowboy camping, too. We were, if the, the weather uh, permitted it and it was just a beautiful night, you're just like, nah, nah, I'm just going to lay right out on the ground. Um but uh, I was I was a bit of a, a shelter fiend a little bit. They're just really super convenient. Uh, you get tired of pulling out, setting up, and breaking down a tent after you know the first thirty times you do it, and and you become fond of these <laughs> yeah. shelters because you can <laughs> yeah, just okay. yeah you can just you just uh, throw down your sleeping pad and bag, and uh, that and and that's it, and you're good to go. And it makes uh, waking up and packing up a little easier in the morning, especially if it's been raining. Uh, you, no one likes breaking down and packing up a wet tent because uh, that adds like an extra pound of weight. You got all that water on everything. 
Uh, so yeah, I believe it. Yeah. So I was definitely a, a bit of a shelter fiend. So the shelters on the Appalachian Trail, from what I understand, they're usually what are called Adirondack shelters, where it's like a little cabin that is uh, like missing a wall in the front. Is that is that right? More or less. That that is, I would say, the the general uh, the the most common design that you're going to run into. And there's several variations on that that design. I mean, there's there's shelters that are built purely out of wood. If you go up in, into Maine, they they call them uh, uh, the I think they call them baseball bat um, shelters because they they use un unprocessed or unmilled wood to create the floor in these things. It's basically just rough timbers cut down in the woods and 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 laid you know side by side to make this this flooring and uh there's a lot of that but there's others in the south that are made out of like cinder blocks you know they kind of look like a bus stop that you'd see on the side of the road uh but the shelter designs run a huge gamut uh of all kinds of things some of them are uh, you know built from the ground up with intention some of them are also repurposed structures you know there's a very famous shelter in uh uh, I believe it's in Tennessee, might be in North Carolina. I forget. It's because it's right. The the trail runs the border between those two states pretty closely, and and you know goes back and forth. But it's called the Roan Mountain Shelter, and it's a barn. It's a it's a a repurposed barn that was turned into a hiker shelter, and it's it's massive and it's really cool. It could put a lot of people in it. Um, but they're like shelters that, you know, they look like a Taj Mahal sometimes. They're, they're super ornate. They have a lot of features built into them, a lot of unusual creature comforts. So it's really up to the discretion of whatever club is, you know, local hiking club is, is building these shelters or putting them in. Uh, but the variety is really cool. And some of them are really old. Some of them go all the way back to the 30s. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, they're just... Uh, they're just neat. There's there's actually books about the the shelters on the AT. It's it's one of the the cool sort of uh, uh, unique aspects about that trail. Did uh do any did, did any have any showers or was that like too fancy? Uh, believe it or not, there is one in. I think it's in North Carolina. It. No, it's in Virginia. I think it's near uh, near the town of Marion, Virginia, and it is uh, it, it's really close to a road, and so obviously that creates a lot of opportunity for bringing materials in easily. So that you know opens up the door for all kinds of possibilities for what you can do. And they actually have a solar shower. Uh, there's actually another one in Virginia that that is similar, and they, yeah, they just have like a big rainwater collection tank on top of a, a platform and uh a hose that runs down and a spigot and you can you can you can crank open this valve and this sun heated water will come down and you can you can essentially shower in a little stall they have built there too and that's like that's definitely on the most more extravagant end of some of the provisions that these shelters would have but it's uh definitely that's that's a a more rare occurrence a lot of them are, are very basic and 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 plain what was the camaraderie between the other hikers like? Did uh, did you make any real connections on the trail with other people who were doing it? Um... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The camaraderie is very cool because uh, it's there. There's a very just unique culture to being a through hiker, uh, and it's something that a lot of people will not on in the outside world if they haven't done it will not really understand. Uh, 
the experience, especially during the time that you're doing it. You're kind of like a weird, uh, like a, you're like basically part of the, the wildlife, you know, they see you and people point sometimes they take pictures and they're just, they're mystified. And, uh, and so you develop this, this, this interesting culture that bonds you all together. You're all doing this, this thing, you're all participating maybe independently, but you're all participating in this, this similar undertaking. Uh, and so there's a lot of relatability there. And so it's very easy for people to strike up conversation and talk about, you know, the, the trail conditions that they're dealing with, or they'll, they'll talk gear, uh, they'll talk footwear, uh, you know, they'll talk different strategies for their calorie consumption. You know, what weird, what weird mad scientist meals they're making out of their freeze dried and preserved, you know, rations that they brought along with them. Um, uh, so yeah, the camaraderie it was was awesome, uh, and I still I still have some really solid connections um, from then. In fact, I'm I'm actually off next week to go on vacation to to go visit a friend uh, from the trail. That's cool, man. That's really cool. Yeah, I was gonna ask if you kept touch with anybody, and obviously you do. That's like a very unique experience to share, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it was awesome. What well, did you eat out there, Dan? So. Uh, for me, a lot of what I ate, I try early on. I tried to go, um, I tried to go more traditional route, like uh, dried fruits, uh, oatmeal, that kind of that kind of thing. Uh, you learn real fast. A lot of that stuff is heavy, and as much as you love the nutrition of it, it's just it's not it's not quite cutting it. Uh, so uh, hikers, a lot of hikers have a guilty pleasure. Uh, a couple guilty pleasures of just like absolute garbage, you know, high preservative food. Number one on that list is of course, ramen. Um, I, I ate a ton of ramen. <laughs> I think I had ramen at every single meal after the first like three weeks on the trail. Like every night I had to have at least a packet of ramen. Um, and by the time I like sort of figured out my dietary science here, uh, my approach, I was eating ramen and, uh, a lot of couscous that I would uh, mix with uh, packets of of uh, salmon. So like the star kiss salmon, there's a, there's like a lot of different flavor varieties that I would have never you know discovered uh, in in regular domestic life. I would have never s- sought these things out. But at the time, it's like, hey, that's protein, and they have all these wild flavors. And it turns out, you know, uh, packets of uh, you know tuna and salmon are are actually pretty good. Um, and so I'd mix that in. Yeah, that sounds good, man. That it, sounds great. Yeah, in fact, it, it, one of my favorite concoctions, and uh, sometimes I still, you know, indulge in this today. Was uh, it was this Mediterranean uh, tuna that was like uh, in the, in the little foil packet it was in. It had uh, olive oil and sun dried tomatoes, and I would mix that in with this uh, basil uh, pearled couscous. And then I'd throw Kalamata olives in it. And that was like, that was like five-star dining for me <laughs> at one point. It was, it was so good. But uh, yeah, ramen, instant mashed potatoes, things like that. You eat a lot of, uh, if you get the chance to stop in a town during the day uh, and resupply at some point, you definitely grab as much fr- fresh produce as you can possibly handle to haul. Uh, for a single day and you you consume that because you know after eating preserved dollar store food for you know five days in a row you you crave a vegetable in the worst way (laughs) 
That's cool, man. That's cool. Did you cook? Did you cook a lot, or, did, or were a lot of these meals cold? Well, you weren't eating the ramen raw, right? No, no. I uh, had a little backpacking stove, uh, which honestly is uh, very reminiscent of uh, like old uh, World War II designs for for actual like gas powered stoves, and uh, it uh, uses an isobutane. Uh, mixture and it's just you put this little tiny pocket sized you know uh burner on top of it and i have a little pot that sits on that and i would be able to boil water and, and heat up the ramen um so i i preferred hot meals especially uh if you've been rained on all day there's like for your morale there's really nothing better than being able to have hot food like that that is uh, i think a universal thing but there are some there's some more hardcore people out there who, again, really ultralight hikers, eschewed the idea of, of carrying a stove because that's extra weight. So they would do a, a process called cold soaking uh, where they'd fill up a canister with water and then throw the ramen or whatever else that was you know, dehydrated in there, screw the lid back on, and then they'd carry that around all day because it, it would take a couple hours for the water to actually permeate and soften everything up. And, and then they'd eat their cold gruel at the end of the day and uh, you know, yeah, that's crazy. whatever, if it works for him, it works for him. But man, I, I needed hot food. <laughs> what about like bad weather, Dan, you know, like rain gear, what did you do for, uh, rain gear for when the weather was, was bad? Yeah. Uh, so when it rains, I, I learned uh, pretty early on that, uh, the, the term waterproof is a lie. There's, there's no, there's nothing on this planet that is, that is waterproof indefinitely. Uh, <laughs> So I had a, uh, I had a, just a, a basically a, 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 th- a thin rain jacket that had a, uh, some sort of, um, rubber or silicone lining in it that was supposed to prevent bleed through, uh, these things, they, you don't breathe, you they don't breathe very well. So you get hot pretty fast wearing them and you accumulate a massive amount of sweat and uh, that kind of bleeds through the fabric and then that invites the rain that's pelting you to also bleed back through the fabric and, and you just end up wet anyway but i had this thing and for light rains it worked pretty well um you know it was basically just like a like a a windbreaker uh that was meant to be a lightweight uh garment for you know a lightweight rain jacket and uh, then i had a little um a similar a similar kind of piece that goes over your the the backpack which is uh, just a a rain cover it's uh you know uh, some a nylon you know shell essentially coated in uh again like silicone rubber or something on the inside so that you can stretch that over your your backpack and keep that from getting soaked um, but that was really the extent of what i had for rain gear i mean they there are some people that have like full rain gear they have rain pants and a rain jacket and, and stuff like that but once you learn that none of that stuff is actually going to stay waterproof you 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 just kind of embrace the the suck. You, you you embrace the fact that you are going to get wet, and there's really nothing you can do about it, short of just not hiking for that day. Um, so, what was the worst weather you encountered? Would you say? Uh, definitely in uh, Virginia. Yeah, it was like the middle of Virginia. Virginia's tough because if you're a northbounder, you hit Virginia right about the time that the uh, spring is really starting to come into full swing, and that means a lot of rain. Uh, and so it, mm-hmm. uh, it, there was a, a particular week where it, uh, rained at least three days consecutively 
uh and then there was like a day off and then it rained again and then there uh, there was another day in there where it would just like rain on and off so there it rained most of that week uh and it was pretty demoralizing uh i I was at a point where i was just trying to make some some hard miles to make up some time and uh it was definitely a struggle to get past that because you know i was kind of separated from the group of people i had been hiking with up till that point Uh, and so i was alone for a lot of that time just getting saturated soaked to the bone just everything in my pack wet me wet from head to toe just uh and like i just hated rain after that point that was that was just a hard a hard time to deal with so yeah sure man there's nothing there's nothing in the world that will demoralize you more or or uh, exacerbate anything that's already demoralizing you than being constantly soaked totally totally how long did the whole thing take you dan uh it took me exactly five months and one day so i started in uh, april 7th of 2017 ended up on september 8th uh of the same year then so which is a pretty average uh well it's a little faster than average pace i think average pace is like six months some people do a little slower than that even other people if they're you know really trying to be performance you know athlete types or they're they're trying to set records they'll go faster some people do it in like three months uh the crazy people who are trying what's the record uh i I lost track but at that time there were a couple record attempts that year that i went and i think i think the guy who set the record for that year was like 45 days something something like that to give you to give you perspective like so i started in april on april 7th on and he didn't start i believe until june so i already had a actually i until like the end of june so i already had like a, a, a huge lead on him by the time he started like i was i was in like pennsylvania or whatever by the time he started in georgia and he actually passed me then at some point in maine uh he like i was i was a, a few days from the end of the trail in maine and he actually had managed to pass me and then finish a few days before i finished which is just like it just gives you like the perspective of how fast these people are going and how many miles they're doing in a day i'm imagining like the roadrunner cartoon you know like i'm imagining that <laughs> it's weird if you run into one of these guys they're like the most strung out people like they're just like the they're just like the the epitome of exhaustion like incarnate they they just like look at you dead eye and they're like hey how's it going and they just keep 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 roaming on you must have had some uh some great times and some bad times out there did did you ever think of quitting the only time I really ever entertained quitting was uh, when I was in New York, and uh, it was New York's kind of a tough state. It, you don't think about it much because there's not a lot of miles through it, but it, it's hot. Like by the time you get there as a northbound hiker, it's it's hot. It's you know you're in the peak of summer, and my feet had just been taking a beating. And New York's kind of exhausting because the the topography of New York, at least where the trail section is in, in southeastern New York, uh, there's a lot of very short inclines and declines, like a roller coaster, like over and over again. Like you know, we're talking like an incline of less than 100 feet going up and then coming right back down and then going right back up and right back down. And that wears you out. And my feet were just hammered. And I... 
uh, a lot of foot problems are very common for hikers and it definitely throws people off the trail. And, uh, I was just in agony. My ankles were just so beat. And I really thought like, I don't know for the sake of, you know, <laughs> my skeleton, maybe I should, maybe I should take some time off or maybe I should, maybe I should stop. But, you know, uh, I persevered. And part of that is, you know, having a, a family of hikers, other hikers, people you bonded with along, you want to, you want to be cohesive. You want to stay together. And so that, that desire to not get separated kind of kept me going. And eventually, you know, the pain worked itself out. Uh, and I was able to recover and do you remember when you were on that ridge that you had been looking at the day that you decided that you were going to quit your job and do this thing? Yeah. Uh, the, yeah, there's a couple spots uh, along the trail uh, that sort of had like a, 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 I don't know how to characterize it, like a, a sentimental moment for me because uh, it was like the completion of a, of a, of a dream born in the years prior. Uh Come, hiking through my home area it was not quite as romantic as I had imagined it <laughs> um, but uh, no it was it was cool being able to you know hike through my home area on that ridge line that I had been looking at before uh, with fr- new friends that I made being able to you know share with them a piece of my my home turf you know and uh, you know there was a a little bit of, of pride there and it was uh i don't know it's just a it's, a it's a good warm cozy feeling you know knowing that you left home got in a car drove 13 hours you know to another state and in a, in a completely different region of the country and and that you walked all the way back and then and then being home there is awesome, like yeah there's man. like a i don't know there's like a there's just a, a cool feeling to that to that homecoming and, and then another spot was uh in new hampshire uh there's a mountain, Mount Musalak, which is like the, the, the first mountain that enters into the, the White Mountains. And uh, I had been there when I was uh, young. I think it was around the time that I had encountered those other hikers uh, that I met when I uh, had, had given a ride to all those years ago. And, uh, you know, the trail goes right over top of that mountain. And there's a, a picture that my dad took of me on top of that mountain when I was, you know, basically fresh out of high school. And, uh, you know, it was, it was, I had not been to that spot again since. And so hiking up to the top of that mountain and getting to that same spot where that same sign is on the peak and standing there and getting to take like, uh, a, a then versus now photo there was kind of a, a cool moment too. That's awesome, dude. How did it feel at the end when you were all done? It was... I, it was uh, it was a lot of very indecipherable emotions. Uh, uh, there, I, I had a, I had sort of a a, a cool poetic moment where uh, once I'd got to the top uh, with a few of the the people I'd been hiking with and around that area, then uh, they all one by one, you know, started to make their descent back down after I'd gotten there after we all got there and uh you know i found myself alone up there uh with this this big sign they have at the top of mount katahdin that says you know mount katahdin uh, northern terminus of the appalachian trail and like the the tradition is to like get your picture on top of the sign you climb up on top of it and i had a whole hour to myself up there just sitting on the sign uh you know looking around at all these uh 
all these lakes surrounding the area that Maine has and uh, watching the mist be blown up, rising up over the top of the mountain and then coming back down these big dramatic cliffs it has. And uh, just thinking nothing. I, I had like no clear thoughts. It was just like, it was a, a strange sort of melancholiness, right? To be able to, you know, you, you have a dream and then you, you realize it. And there's a bit of a sort of, you know, disbelief and a bit of, uh, you know, well, now what? Um, just having the, the chance to kind of sit there and meditate on that for for a good while by myself was, uh, I don't know, it was a, it was a good sentimental moment. Uh, I definitely have a lot of appreciation for. Wow. Um, I guess kind of, you know, we're, we're running out of time and I know we could easily talk about this for another hour. Um, you know, looking back on it now that it's been a few years, kind of what's your sort of, what's your take on it? You know, do you, do you feel like you learned a lot from it? Do you feel like it was valuable? Do you think it's going to have like a lifelong lifelong impact that you managed to achieve this tremendous thing? I think in some ways, yeah. Um, there, I think the biggest takeaways I got from it uh, was the knowledge that uh, I I can I can do without. I can be content with less. Um, those were definitely some of the best days uh, of my life thus far. And, uh, you know, I had, you know, everything in my world at that point was shoved into, a, you know, a 60 liter backpack that I carried around. So I, I you know, I didn't, I didn't need much. Uh, the companionship, uh, the, the adventure of it, the, uh, the exploration of nature was, you know, sufficient to, to feel that that lust for life that that uh that yearning we have uh to feel alive and uh so coming home then it was like you know i i have a new perspective on material possessions and like and, and i still find myself all the time looking at things that i have and go like do, do i do i do i realistically need this thing do i do i even really want this thing uh and i think i think that's a valuable thing that a lot of people could certainly uh, learn, you know, in, in today's, you know, heavily material focused society. Um, it's just that, you know, worthwhile moments and experiences can be made out of very little. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it, it was definitely a refreshing thing. And, uh, you know, we could all, we could all stand to learn from that. A lot of former military members kind of are drawn to reenacting. Some of those adrenaline rushes kind of kind of come back. There's no perfect unit out there where everything is just nirvana, and you know there's going to be butting heads. There's going to be different ideas. There's going to be instances where it's almost like middle school or high school drama. Not only are events being cancelled, but Soviet reenactors, often reenactors who have supported the same shows for years and years are, are essentially now being said that they're, you know, being told that they're persona non grata. The Reenactors Corner, bringing history to life. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and telling us about it. It's been really great hearing about it, Dan. Absolutely. I, thank yeah, you thank so you. much for having me on. All right. So to uh, Dan and Ben and everybody else out there, uh, stay safe. I'll see you on the trail and I'll see you in the field. See you on the trail and in the field. I right, see you guys. 
We love hearing your thoughts on the podcast, so why not sign up to the Reenactors Corner on Discord? You'll find a link in the show notes that accompany this episode. And while you're there, perhaps have a think about supporting us via Patreon. Your regular donations, no matter how big or small, really count and help keep us on the air. Thanks to Mike, a.k.a. Retroman, for editing the podcast. And we hope that you'll join us here again soon for the next episode of The Reenactors Corner.